My name is Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here at Midland Free. And as you heard the uh uh-ohs, I am sitting today because I am very sore, but I'm getting better. So thank you very much for your prayers this last week as um, I'm recovering from a significant fall. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the new year, 2016, and as such, our church has kind of turned over a new page, a new leaf, if you will. And what we've done is we've been intentional about tweaking our missional mission statement just a little bit. It's not a dynamic or radical change in wording, but we're hoping that it will be a dynamic and radical change in effect. And that is this, what we've done is we've tweaked the word disciple to become an active verb that is disciple maker. In other words, we at Midland Free believe that our mission or our calling is to make and mature and multiply disciple makers Of Jesus Christ. So what we've done to start off the year is we're doing something a little different. Typically I speak uh, expositionally or specifically through a book and we just go uh, page by page, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But what the pastors have done is over the last uh, course of the last couple years is worked out for them what it means specifically to be a disciple maker of Jesus Christ. They came up with eight what they consider key characteristics of a disciple maker. And so kicking off this 2016 year, what we're doing is just taking a week to look at each one of those characteristics and say, what would that look like for us as a church? So we began uh, with Pastor David's sermon on explaining the change, multiplying disciple makers. And then the last couple of weeks, we've looked at these two Topics that is trusting Christ alone for salvation and then live by the Holy Spirit. Which means today we're coming to number three, which is obey the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. For this topic, our definition is this this is what it means it means living out biblical truths received through study and prayer and shepherding others to do the same. Now, as we begin uh, this topic, I'd like to, if it's all right with you, just share a little bit from my heart, from my own personal passion and upbringing and calling or whatever you want to call it, the way God has designed and directed me to be. And that is this, starting in a sense with some of our weaker moments, um, as a pastor, behind the scenes, the uh, sort of backstage look at our lives, if you will, is that sometimes in our weaker moments, it's easier for us, it's very easy for us to question our calling. We will see images of what is considered to be a successful pastor, typically accompanied by book deals, growing congregations, and large internet audiences. And we can begin to question our calling and say, oh, Lord, God, What am I doing wrong? That is not me. Perhaps I am a failure. Perhaps I misread your call on my life. 
We can go through those darker moments and we can see other occupations that look interesting, ones that are exciting or perhaps lucrative or whatever. And we begin to spiral and wonder, God, is this really what you want me to do? It's at those times that this verse, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, becomes particularly poignant to me. And it says this, Jeremiah is talking in one of his darker moments, and he says, If I say, I will not make mention of him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. My passion, my heart, is to communicate the Word of God. And as one called to this occupation, it's kind of hard to explain to you uh, what that means if you've never had a similar experience before. In a sense, what I would say is this, is that the text is somewhat magical. It's difficult to explain, but it's powerful. It's not just ink on a paper or words on a page, but it is something that is actually alive. It is living, it is breathing, it is moving, it changes things, and it changes me. It brings me back from the brink of despair. It gives me hope, it gives me encouragement, it gives me meaning, and it helps me to feel better. It is unlike any other book. And so consequently, I have made it my life work, my chief desire, my main aim to as much as possible be in it, let it change me, and then communicate or share that experience with you. And so today as we begin this section, Obey the Word of God, I hope to give you a glimpse or a hint or a taste of an experience of what that is like. As we read this definition earlier, to live out biblical truths received through study and prayer, I'm going to assume a couple things, and that is this, is in some sense, now this may or may not be true, but this is the way we'll proceed today, is that you are already doing some of these things. I'm going to assume, for the sake of argument, that you are in your Bible, that you are reading your Bible, and that you are studying your Bible. Now, according to statistics, that's probably a bad assumption to make. However, I know that this is an intelligent audience and you are a good group of people, so I'm going to assume that you can study your Bibles and that you can pray. So what I will then emphasize today is, as a result of that judgment call, that what we need to talk about is the obedience part. The obedience part. What does it mean to obey? Now, when I ask that question, it's kind of fun to see what sort of responses come forward. And no doubt I tested that in my ad hoc survey this week on Facebook. And I I asked the question, I said, when you hear the word obey, what comes to mind? And one person said, well, cue Darth Vader, right? Bring back the guy that was here last week. When we think of obedience, we think of the evil dark Lord who forces and imposes his will Upon everyone else, making us mere minions subject to his slavery and forced to endure the drudgery under compulsion with no compassion. That's what it means to obey. Others said, says who? Why? 
And the question then really becomes when it's when the word obey comes up is, um, do you think of obedience as something you do out of compulsion or instead is it a blessing? What I hope to communicate today is that, in fact, it is the latter and not the former, that obedience is indeed the path to blessing. James chapter 1, verse 25 says this. It says, A doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. A doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. As a result, what I want to do today as we look at this topic is I'm just going to walk you through three basic movements of the action of obedience and demonstrate, hopefully, that in fact it is the path of blessing. What is obedience? Well, let's begin with what is a blessing. What is a blessing? We perhaps use that term frequently and we think of warm fuzzies or stickers on our homework assignments or smiley faces or whatever, but I want to ask in a very real way, what is a blessing? And then, once we've discovered that, I want to walk us down, how do, I, how do I get on that path? How do I get on the road? What are the first steps to me being blessed through obedience? And then finally, give me one practical example. What is a real-life thing I can actually do in order to be blessed? So then, let's begin with number one. What is a blessing? A blessing, by definition, if you're taking notes, is this. It is a sign of special favor that is intended to result in prosperity and success. Typically, it comes from a greater to a lesser. Now, as I look at this biblically, what that means is this. is we, I want to take us back to the very beginning when we first see original blessings. Of course, Adam and Eve were blessed to be in the garden, but the first person outside of that, under the fall, who was called and blessed by God, is a fellow by the name of Abram. This is how it happened in Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He just says, Go. He approaches him one day out of the blue and says, get up and go. And then this is what God promises to Abram. He says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now, there are a few things that are particularly interesting about this blessing, and one of which I find is this, is as the Lord calls Abraham, he gives him no details whatsoever. He just says, get up and go. Now, if you happen to be a type A personality like me, and you like a plan, and you like a direction, and you like an an intentional course, this is going to be a difficult call. There's no cost mentioned, there's no time frame, there's no specifics, there's no details, there's nothing. It's just get up and go. The Lord comes out of the blue one day to Abram and says, get up, go. 
And if, he, if Abram's anything like me, he's asking the questions, well, where am I going? How do I get there? You know, what do I take? Who's coming along with me on this journey? How long will I be gone? What will it look like when I arrive? All of these questions are left up in the air and hanging, and God just says, go. And that's what it's like for us sometimes. When God comes to us, and he's particularly speaking to us, and he begins to act and work in our life, sometimes there are details that he intentionally leaves out. Why? Because he wants us to be scared or afraid? No, because he wants us to trust him. And this is how we begin to demonstrate our faith in God's call or work in our life, is when we begin to see the big picture and not worry so much about the details. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you throw you know, caution to the wind and you forget planning and all of that. You still do everything you can. But at some point you say, Lord, I don't exactly know how this is going to work out, but I am trusting you for the outcome. And so by faith, you get up and you say, yes, okay, I will go. This is clearly the Lord's leading in the next step, the path in my life. Therefore, okay, God, here we go. So, God calls Abraham, and Abraham, by faith, gets up and goes. Now, a very similar incident occurs a little bit later in Abram's life when he has a son, and God asks him to sacrifice his only son. This sort of ups the ante. This goes beyond just, hey, leave your father's home and go someplace else. This is kill the most beloved thing in your entire life. And again, without any details or explanation whatsoever, Abram, by faith, demonstrates his obedience to God. This is why in the New Testament he is held up as such a tremendous example because he totally trusts God in every way possible, both with his life and with the people who are under his care. And so even though God doesn't reveal to him, hey, I've got a great spot for you, or don't worry, there's a ram up there in the thicket, even though God doesn't say all of that ahead of time, Abram still trusts God and goes. So what we see in the Old Testament, in fact, transfers into the New. Some people would say, hey, in the New Testament, it is by grace through faith you're saved, but in the Old Testament, it's through action. And that is, in fact, not true at all. Salvation occurs in the same way in both Testaments, by grace through faith. And then you demonstrate your faith by working it out. In the Old Testament, it's through the sacrificial Levitical system And in the New Testament, it is through your action of carrying out the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. But in both places, the instrument at work that is saving you is the same thing. It is grace through faith. So in the Old Testament, Abram's deal is this. God says to him, Abraham, you know, get up and go. Abraham, get up, kill your son. Abraham, do this and I will bless you. And for Abraham, with the limited amount of revelation that he has at that time, what that blessing looks like is very physical and tangible. It is the material world here and now. Abram only has a limited amount of revelation. And so for him, what blessing is, is this. His farmland is going to be productive. His work is going to prosper. His enemies will be defeated. His family will grow and become large. 
he will enjoy good health and long life and die at a ripe old age. That is an Abrahamic blessing. That is the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, or the Old Agreement. Now, as you know, as you have probably experienced, being faithful to Christ doesn't guarantee all of those things. It is a complete misapplication to take the old agreement and make it the new one and say, hey, you know what, I think because I am being faithful to Christ that I am going to be successful in my business, I'm going to get protection from my enemies, I'm going to make a whole bunch of money and always be happy and die at a ripe old age. No, of course not. That's called the prosperity gospel, and that's entirely wrong. Instead, what we see is Christ says, pick up your cross and follow me. (laughs) Welcome to the new covenant. It's going to be tough. But the blessing that I'm offering you is, in fact, even greater than the blessing I offered before. And so in the New Testament, under our agreement, what happens is that we shift from the physical material here and now and move into the spiritual now and the physical and material later. And our stipulation is not get up and go to Canaan, but instead believe in Jesus and trust him to take you to the promised land. Believe in Jesus and believe that he will get you to eternity, to heaven, to the new heavens and the new earth. And if you do that now, if you believe in Christ, then these will be your blessings. Yours will be forgiveness of sins. Yours will be the presence of the Holy Spirit. Your blessing will be a brand new life which gives you the ability to live to God and not to sin. Yours will be comfort, peace, encouragement, strength, hope, and joy. Yours will be a promise that, although you suffer right now, you will, in fact, be rewarded later. To such an extent that anything you go through now won't even compare to what you get then. In other words, the potential cost so, or potential gain so far outweigh the cost that this decision is almost a no-brainer. You've got to go for it. Said in a very eloquent way, this is by a guy by the name of um, Vincent. He does some New Testament word studies, and he defines a blessing like this. Having said it in my words, listen to his. I'm going to just read this. It is high. Put your thinking caps on. It is eloquent, but it is very particular and very beautiful. This is how he defines a New Testament blessing for a New Testament believer. One of you who has accepted Jesus Christ. He says this. The word blessing has thus passed up into the higher region of Christian thought. Shaking itself loose from all thoughts of outward good, it becomes the express symbol of a happiness identified with pure character. Behind it lies the clear cognition of sin as the foundation head of all misery, and of holiness as the final and effectual cure for every woe. Therefore, the vague outlines of an abstract good vanish from it, our ideas of warm fuzzies, little halos, and cute stickers, and it gives place to the pure heart's vision of God and its personal communion with the Father in heaven. In other words, more than a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness, 
True blessing is this, a state of well-being in relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus. In other words, for us, what is a blessing? The state of being in good relation with God or being in God's good graces. In other words, said more crassly, a happy wife is a happy life. I think you know what that means, but you could say it another way. In New Testament terms, you could say a happy God is a happy life. A happy God is a happy life. Now, I know that sounds a bit um, base, if you will, because it makes it sound as if we are pagan idolaters trying to satisfy an angry deity through sacrifice and other things that will cause him to bless us. But the reality is we know from the New Testament that God has in fact already been satisfied. He is in position to bless us. He is excited about us. All we have to do is accept that sacrifice or that offering and then boom, we are in a state of blessing. We are in good relationship with Him. And just like our wives, the way to please Him is not necessarily always through sacrifice but is instead through love. By simple, straightforward love. By serving Him and putting His interest above your own, you will be in good graces or in a good way with God. Just like with your spouse. If you love them and you serve them and you put their interest above your own, then all of a sudden, they're feeling pretty good about you. And things go well. So, A blessing is being in a good relationship with God, point one. And point two, how do I get on this path? Well, here's how. James 1.25 says this. It says, a doer who acts, he will be blessed. In other words, for the New Testament believer, obedience is the path to blessing. Obedience is the path to blessing. Now, again, we need to be very clear about what we mean by that because this is not a health and wealth gospel. This is not a prosperity gospel church. I am not telling you if you obey God that all of a sudden you get rich or you get well. That is not the case. Instead, you enter into a state of harmonious relations with God. And that is the greatest blessing. How then do we obey? Let me give you three Three steps that begin to start. This is your starting point for the journey in obedience. The first step is this. It is humility. Humility. Step one, on the path to obedience, you need to be humble. Step two, it is through submission. Submission. And step three is that it ends in love. So in other words, the path to obedience looks like this. It begins in humility, it follows through in submission, and it ends in love. Humility, submission, and love. Now, if I were to try to stand up here and make myself the example, it would be a very poor example. But fortunately, we have a perfect example and also a very good example in Scripture. The perfect, of course, being Jesus Christ and the very, 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 very good 
being his mother Mary. Both of whom demonstrate a tremendous amount of humility and submission. Jesus demonstrates his humility simply in the fact that he became human. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 through 11 says it like this. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself. In other words, to leave his throne in heaven, to even come and walk on our dirt, means that Christ had to be humble. To leave streets of gold and perfect eternal harmony and come to this mess means that he was humble. He didn't have to do that. What would cause him to do that? Why would he even want to do that? To get down in the dirty trenches and muck and mire with us. Surely Christ, our Savior, was humble. But not only was he humble, he was also submissive. As we've said before, Christ, God the Son, exists in perfect harmony and unity with God the Father and God the Spirit. And the way you see that working out in Scripture, is that God the Father sends the Son, and God the Son sends the Spirit, so that the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Son. They are all God, yet they have different roles. And here, in Matthew chapter 26, you see that playing out in verse 39. When Jesus is praying in the garden before His crucifixion, He says to God the Father... My Father, if it be your will, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. He is perfectly submissive. Even though he is God the Son, even though he can command the wind and the waves and the rain and everything else, even though he can disappear in one place and show up in another, he chooses not to do that at this point, but stays in the exact point where he knows that he will be betrayed and enter into his suffering and crucifixion and humiliation. He submits. He submits. God the Son is humble and submissive. He is perfectly obedient. And he makes it clear to us the reason he does this is because of the love that he has for the Father and the love that the Father has for the Son. So again, obedience then moves through the process or begins on the path with humility and submission and then ends in love. We see this also in the life of Mary, his mother, who is a humble, small-town girl from the city of Nazareth. When the angel approaches her and tells her what's going to happen, in other words, that she will be shamed, that she could be stoned, that everyone is going to hate her and she'll be an embarrassment to her family, she says, okay, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but like our father Abraham, even though I have no understanding of how the details are going to look or how this is going to work out, I trust you, and as a result, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel left. Mary demonstrates perfect humility and perfect submission. This is what it looks like for the New Testament believer This is what it looks like for you and me. And so as we begin to ask the question, hey, how can I demonstrate myself to be obedient to God because I want to be in good graces with Him. I want to be in His favor. I want to experience that blessing. Well, obey. 
And you begin your obedience through humility and submission. So in other words, for us, this means we need to do more listening and less talking. We need to do more apologizing and less proving. We need to do more encouraging than rebuking and coming alongside than tearing down. In other words, we need to love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4-7 through 7 say this is what it looks like. This is real love. This is what it looks like in your life, the life of a New Testament believer. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at the wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is love. And this is the single most important command in all of Scripture. Not what I say, but in fact what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was being questioned by the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day. They were trying to trick him and trip him up. And they asked him this question as to put him in a lose-lose sort of no-win situation. And they say, okay, we have all these commands, we have all these traditions. See if you can tell us which one is most important. And Jesus responds to them and says, okay, here it is. Are you ready? Listen up. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Being a New Testament Christian is really pretty simple. We can come up with a lot of fancy formulas and programs and tactics and strategies and whatever else, but in the end, the bottom line is that we need to love. We need to love. And that's hard, but that's real. When other people see that you love them, it really doesn't matter in that sense what you do or how you do it. They will understand that the bottom line intent of your heart is to help them, that you love them. And you may trip and stumble and bumble and fall once in a while, but oh well, because they know you love them. This is the true path to blessing. It begins with humility, it follows in submission, and it ends in love. Let me give you then one practical example of how you can love someone today. How can you love someone today? This is James chapter 1, verses 19 and following. This is a very, very practical day-to-day example of how we can actually love. James says this, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, of course, this is uh, using the male pronoun in this passage. And I'm not entirely sure if that's intentional or not. I know as men, it's easy for us to struggle with anger. 
Our passions run high and we are red-blooded males who get frustrated and upset. That is real. But all of us can apply the same process here to help us love one another. And that is this, is quick, slow, slow. Quick, slow, slow. James is telling us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Regardless of what your buttons are, the process is the same. We need to listen to people. And here then is the application. Look, if you want to show somebody that you love them, one of the best things you can do to that person is actually listen to them. If you say to them, how is your day? You should mean it. And be willing to stop and sit and listen. But don't ask them how they are if you're not really asking. Instead, just say hi or wave or give them a smile. But the best thing you can actually do, if you want to demonstrate to someone that you love them, is to listen to them. People desperately desire to be understood. They want to feel affirmed. And when you do that, you give them a gift. You make them feel validated and affirmed and significant. More often than not, what happens is we as people are plowing ahead because we're busy. We have things that are imposed upon us. We need to get it done by a certain time. And so we are on the move. And to stop and listen is going to cost us something. And we're not sure if we're willing to pay that price. But if you really want to show someone that you love them, the best thing you can do is stop and put your agenda aside and ask them how they're doing and really mean it. And listen. And listen. And when you do, I guarantee that person's going to go away feeling loved. Let me make it really practical, even more so than that. There's a book out there uh, entitled How to Win Friends and Influence People by a guy by the name of Dale Carnegie, and it's not necessarily a Christian book, but basically what he's doing, I think in a sense, is taking this James passage and breaking it down for us. And so he gives some very specific applications. You can get his book or you can email me and I can email you back, but I'm just going to read these off. And these may be kind of hard to write down if you're trying to go fast. Don't get frustrated or upset. You can get the book or you can email me. But here are some very practical tips for how to listen better to other people. He, he breaks them down in big categories, so let me give you the first category. This is six ways to make people like you. The first is to become genuinely interested in other people, to actually be interested. It does make a big difference, doesn't it, if you're actually interested in what they're saying. Then you naturally tend to listen and you ask questions. Become interested. Smile. Smile a little bit. Show them your teeth. A smile is often one of the best gifts you can give. Remember their name. Oh, man. Do I struggle with this. (laughs) Wow. Thank you for your grace and being Christian with me as I continue to learn all of your names. But this is huge. If you say to someone on multiple occasions in the conversation their name, they will appreciate it. Encourage them to talk about themselves. 
It's funny how that works, isn't it? You know, I can remember when we were a young couple and we didn't have children. And we went to the young marrieds class at our church. There's all these like 30-year-olds. And we're like, wow, these people are old, you know? And they've been married for 10, 11 years, and they're sitting there, and my wife is just, you know, newly wed of, as of a couple weeks, and they start their class and prayer request, and one lady's pregnant, and all of a sudden, it's down the road of pregnancy stories. Wow. And my wife is sitting there going, ooh, I don't want to hear this. But that's what happens, right? I hurt my back, and all of a sudden, I have a lot of new friends that I never knew I had before, because there's a lot of back injuries out there. And they say to me, how's your back? I'm like, it's pretty sore. And then you know what they say? Well, man, I remember when I hurt my back and boom, we go down that path. Why? Because we like to tell our story. They're not being mean and it's just fine with me. I don't want to tell my story a hundred times over. It's more interesting if I get to listen to their story. Yeah, how'd you hurt your back? Tell me about that. It's better. Then you don't have to talk about yourself the whole time. Get interested. Listen to their story. Talk in terms of their interest. It will make them feel special or important. Ways to make people like you. Here's some ways to win people to your way of thinking. That is important, right? Try honestly to see things from their point of view. Number one, begin in a friendly way. (laughs) Number two, remember that the best way to win an argument is to avoid it. Number three, Number four, avoid saying you're wrong. Show respect. If you're wrong, admit it quickly and emphatically. And here's one of the best sales techniques. I'm sure if you're a salesman, you know that. Get people saying yes, yes. When I was in um, college, I worked at at a big hotel chain. And one of the things they taught you in your sales class is you ask all these simple questions leading up to the real question And all of those simple questions end with the answer, yes. And all of a sudden, the person's moving down, yes, 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 yes. (laughs) You know, be friendly. Ask simple questions. Talk in their interest. You can go on and on and on about these simple self-help techniques, but the bottom line is you need to listen to other people. You need to love other people. You need to let them talk about their interests, and you need to hear their story. Enter into their space, and when you do so, they begin to move towards you, and as they do, then you can truly love that person and help them. Now, biblical love is not love that's devoid of truth. You may have some hard things that eventually you have to say, but you don't necessarily start there. Establish trust, build rapport, listen to them, hear their perspective, understand their point of view, and then you begin to walk down that path. Listen. Listen to others. Number one, listen. Listen to others and also you need to, of course, listen to God. Now, last week we talked a little bit about what that looks like with regard to living by the Holy Spirit. We talked about how you experience that in community as a group or body of believers. And we also talked about how you experience that um, through God's Word. This is the primary way in which we do so. And James, in the same chapter today, in verse 21, he says it like this, to listen to God means that we put away all filthiness and rampart wickedness 
and receive, this is how we do it, with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Now that with meekness, that, that's the catch, right? That's the hard part. Especially when you're wrong, and even more so when you're partly wrong. You know, I think it's one thing to be able to hear a rebuke when you're totally wrong and you're just like, yeah, I flubbed that one. No, no argument. I mean, I, that was just wrong. But it's another thing when it's a little bit gray and you're kind of like, well, I was right about this, but yeah, that could have been handled a little better. And, but here's why I did it. And so let me explain to you and justify and make it not seem so bad. And then you'll understand that I won't have to apologize, <laughs> you know. And that's the path that we want to walk down. We create excuses, we make exceptions, and we come up with parallel lines of reasoning that are really beside the point. And that is why this verse is very intentional about its analogy. It says, when you receive something with meekness, don't do that. Don't do that because doing that is like simply looking in a mirror at your natural face and then looking at yourself and walking away. You see that your hair is really out of place. Now, let me tell you a little secret, okay? This is only in this room, all right? My daughter, she's two, and she's absolutely beautiful. And I love her like crazy. But boy, you should see her hair in the morning. Wow! Oh, my goodness. She has curly hair, and when she gets up in the morning, it is crazy. I mean, it's all over the place. And we wet it down just a little bit, and all of a sudden they turn into little ringlets, and they're beautiful. But man, is it funny. Well, what would happen is she got out of bed, and she's got her crazy hair going all over the place, and we just looked at it, and we said, oh, that's cute. Well, it is cute, but it's also crazy. And all we have to do is make a little adjustment, and all of a sudden it's beautiful. So much so with you and me in our lives. Look, if you look into the mirror of God's Word, you may see something in your life and you're like, man, that is crazy. That is out of place. That is just wrong. And you may want to try to avoid it because you think it's hurtful or painful, but oftentimes all you have to do is make a little tiny adjustment and all of a sudden it's beautiful. Just put a little water on it. Change. God has designed you a certain way. He's given you strengths. And if those strengths are overemphasized, they could become a weakness. If you're a prophet, you're bold, you're good at calling out sin, but you may have to calm it down a little bit and change your approach. And then it becomes a strength. Or if your gift is compassion and it's really hard for you to speak up, then in fact you may have to amp it up a little. And when you do speak up, People will hear you better than they can hear others because they know you're compassionate. Look in the mirror and admit it. Yeah, in this way, it's either because I messed up or my parents messed up or God made me this way or whatever. Let's just be honest and say, hey, we're not perfect, but here's what we can do. These are the cards we've been dealt. Now let's work with them. Let's have a real conversation, be authentic and honest and say, okay, that's the way I am. I may not even like it. I wish you could see this part of me, but hey, here we are. Be honest. Be honest. Looking in the mirror and walking away is no benefit whatsoever. 
Instead, it's better just to take a hard, good hard look and then pull the Band-Aid off fast. Just get it over with. Rip it off, tear it out, and be done with it. That is why in verse 21, James uses the word put away. The original language carries the idea of strip off or just peel, just destroy, just get rid of it. All the filthiness and all the rampart wickedness and throw it away. How do we overcome our own sin and selfishness? Well, we've got to rip it off. And how do we do that? Through the Word of God. That's why in verse 21, he uses this gardening analogy, and it is this. He says, you receive it with meekness, what? The implanted word which is able to save your soul. The word implanted there wants you to think in terms of a gardening analogy. In other words, as has been said, your heart is the soil. And your soil can be one of two ways. It can be hard and cold, making it impossible for the seed to implant itself and take root. Or your heart could be full of weeds, which although it may be soft, is growing a garden of yuckiness that needs to be rooted up and torn out and destroyed. But either way, you are the soil and the seed is the Word of God and it wants to implant itself in your life and grow and bear fruit, but you need to be responsible for how you receive it. Tear out the weeds, till up the soil, and get the Word inside. And when you do, then you begin to see and experience growth and fruit. So the question for us then simply becomes, hey, what kind of soil are we? Because the Word of God is there and it is ready to implant itself in our hearts, but we need to let it. Pull out the weeds, get rid of them, and implant the Word of God. It is both the spade or shovel that helps us root out the weeds and it is the seed that goes in our hearts. That's why the prophet Isaiah kind of follows this analogy when he talks about the Word of God. He says of the Word that in verse 10 of chapter 55, the Word of God is as the rain and the snow come down from heaven. It doesn't just return back up to heaven, but instead it waters the earth, making it pour forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, God says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish its purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. Obedience is the path to blessing. Obey the word of God. If you want to be in good harmony or state with God, then you need to obey. And you need to do so by being humble, submissive, and loving. And as you begin to walk down that path, you will see the Word take root in your heart and it will spring forth and bear fruit. That's a promise. God promises you that. That if you are like that soil and the Word is implanted in you, 
then this result will happen. It's a guarantee. His word will not return to him void. It is effective. It is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's magic. I can't explain to you exactly what it is. It is not just words on a page, but it is the word of God himself. And it is alive, and it is breathing, and we need to actively apply it to our hearts. When we do so, the psalmist tells us this in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the Psalms. He says, blessed, blessed, in a great relationship with God, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here goes that gardening analogy. Here it is. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Blessed is the one who obeys the word of God. Father, you're a good and gracious God. We thank you so much for your word, which is true and active and alive. We pray, God, that as people, we would be sensitive to it, that we would allow it to take root in our heart, weed out anything there that should not be there. And Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, we will then exist in a perfect state of blessedness and walk in relation to you. Lord, we praise you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We ask that you'd help us to apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.